Welcome to episode 553 with my guest Amy Morin. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. Uh, I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles you can follow us at. if if things get a little loud in the background, I am dog sitting a couple of friends' dogs. So it's been uh, it's been a little nutty here with uh, with three dogs, and also I had the fucking uh, I'm sitting in my kitchen and I see this lady come up on a bike and come into my front door, and I. Almost didn't answer it, and I decided to answer it, and she has my dog, Gracie, and I was like, what the fuck? The only way I could have imagined that Gracie got out was when I was taking the garbage out. She snuck around behind my back, and I don't know if that was her teenage tantrum way of uh, rebelling against me taking two dogs in for uh, for five days but holy shit i have just since then i have just been <laughs> loving on her man not that i ever go without uh loving on her but oh my god and this person found her at a busy intersection about a quarter mile from my house oh i i told this lady i said you are an angel from heaven. And then I told her to get off my front lawn. And she seemed a little confused. But by that time, I had Gracie. And there was nothing she could do. And she pedaled away in tears. This is from this struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Mia. And about her depression, she writes, The eternal sadness is just around the corner, waiting for you to get you to relax a little and get unguarded so it can creep up on you, ambush you, and swallow you whole. About her bulimia, maybe all the doctors and psychologists are just blind to the truth. The ability to purge isn't an illness. It's a superpower. And about her compulsive eating, the next binge is going to be the one that fills up the aching crevice in my soul. Oh, that is so deep. Whew. Snapshot from her life. I ordered a massive jar of Nutella online as binge food during quarantine. When I opened the parcel, the glass was completely shattered. But seeing the delicious hazelnut cream, my binge eating disorder got the better of me. I started spooning spooning the split Nutella from the filthy box. Then I got myself some bread to go with it. I took a bite and heard my tooth shatter. There was a piece of broken glass in the Nutella. It had cracked my tooth and cut open my tongue and gum. The compulsion was stronger than the pain. I spat out the broken glass and kept on eating. Wow. Wow. It It is amazing. The... Lengths that we will go to when we don't want to feel feelings. 
and boy, do I relate to that. You know, I've, I've struggled with so many compulsions in the past, uh, you know, drugs, drugs and alcohol, video games, pornography. Um, and you know, I, the thing, the thing about uncomfortable feelings is if we can sit through uncomfortable feelings, we can learn to know ourselves better. But to do that, we have to let the feelings pass through us. And in a way, it, it kind of washes away the parts of us that have been obscuring or confusing us or just too heavy to feel. But when the feelings pass, what's left in their wake is a cleaner view of our inner selves, you know, our fears, what we love, what we have, what we truly want, our souls. Whether it's something you wanted to learn about yourself uh, or not, it, either way, it'll be information that will absolutely help you make decisions in the future, especially in regards to who you are authentically or who you want to be authentically. Rather than playing a role because you think you should, that's the default, playing the role. So if you've never tried it, feel uncomfortable, cry, shake, scream. And on the other side will be a glimpse of the real you. I promise. I've experienced that. But I don't always sit through those, those feelings because it's fucking hard. You feel like you're crawling out of your skin and bored at the same time. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey filled out by PJ from NJ. And she writes, uh, she was uh, hospitalized for uh, bipolar one with psychosis. And she writes, I thought there were snakes everywhere outside. I was terrified. I didn't tell anyone. I thought FEMA was taking over, sending us to concentration camps. I tried convincing my husband that we needed to move to a survivalist community. I checked myself in voluntarily, uh, telling everyone close that I just needed a break. I never told them about the psychosis because I was and still am too vain to tell the truth. While hospitalized, I was able to just break down and cry and finally share with other people like myself. One night, all my rage finally came out, which ultimately led to me being sedated in a padded room. I understand there is hope I will never experience psychosis again. I pray this is the scenario since I now have children and do not want them to see that. I've been vigilant on my meds. Good for you, PJ. I know so many people who just refuse to take the meds that, that, that give them a chance at not destroying their life. You know, it, it's one thing if you choose not to take meds because, you know, it, you're, you're experiencing something mild and you don't like the side effects. But, man, when it comes to psychosis, uh, that to me is, is just... Uh, you know, I always ask myself, what are the side effects of not being on meds? This is from 
psych ward experiences as well, filled out by um, a trans man who calls himself, I'm too pretty to be sad. And they were admitted after overdosing and uh, slitting their wrists, but panicked after uh, they swallowed the pills and called for help. And uh, they were minor when they were in there. And uh, they write, I would try to tell them what was wrong, and they would gaslight me by saying, oh, you're too pretty to be sad. That is unfucking believable That is unbelievable that people, professionals in a psych ward, would say something so stupid. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Lazy Mistress 713. And uh, about her anxiety, she writes, I feel like no matter how prepared I am, there will be something bigger and stronger that will fuck it up and take me out. Oh my God, that is so dead on. It is so dead on. She writes a snapshot from her life. Uh, She writes, As an adult, before I leave, I have to make sure I have a GPS available just in case I get lost, even if I know where I'm going. I have to have cash in case something happens and I have to bribe someone to get out of it. I let people know where I'm going to be and make my husband memorize what I'm wearing just in case I go missing. I also make my husband check the doors every night before bed and have weapons hidden around the house just in case of a house break-in in hand-to-hand combat. Man, that is a lot to deal with emotionally, not only for you, but I imagine for your, for your husband as well. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, an email uh, I got that uh, is from uh, Frank David, and uh, he writes, Dear Sir, Madam, I have important transaction to discuss with you, and I need your urgent attention. Greetings. I like the fact that greetings was thrown at the end, just to make sure I'm, I'm on my toes. And uh, I identify as Sir rather than madam, but if you want to hyphenate me, feel free to. Um, but I am, I am taking this email seriously, um, especially the urgent attention part. And so what I've done is I've, I, I want to be able to give Frank David my undivided attention. And so I've, I've ended all my relationships. I've sold everything I own. And I am sitting on an empty crate in my empty house and I'm wearing those uh, horse blinders that race horses use and I have to tell you something about them just feels right feels very comfortable and so I've decided that I am going to try to run in the Kentucky Derby but I'm not sure when it is because I sold my laptop so I'm not really sure what to do. This is from Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by 22 going on 45. And uh, she was hospitalized after a hypomanic episode. 
and uh, she struggles with eating disorders. And it's rare that we get a psych ward experience that has positive takeaways from it. And this is one of them. And she writes, uh, highlights include so many people were knitting or crocheting that I decided to learn. My mind's a stormy sea and picking up some yarn and needles feels like entering into the hot, the eye of the hurricane. My therapist said the words, it must be hard gaslighting yourself, and also had to remind me I didn't really need to impress people with how put together I am when we're all in a partial hospitalization recovery program. Twice a week, we had a queer support group, and I cannot emphasize enough how healing and vital this group was to me since I don't come from an accepting family and rely on found family for emotional support. My body had to relearn to digest food in non-survival mode, and I figured out that my brain had been in survival mode pretty much my whole life. It helped kickstart something. I feel like I'm trekking through the recesses of my mind and continuously finding more and more neglected facets of myself that need tending to. I experience a lot of behavior swapping. If it's not dissociating, it's restricting, binging, purging, getting high, or seeking out love in the wrong places. I know it's a journey, and I'm young, but I'm already exhausted. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's so great when you find a hobby that can just make you totally, totally present. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. Been using it for years. Love sitting in my recliner, sucking my thumb, crying about my problems. Um, if you have never tried online therapy, they are licensed in all 50 states. They have a large selection of counselors. Uh, you can browse uh, uh, different issues uh, that you're having uh, so they can help pair you with a, a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you. You know, for instance, if you're, you've suffered trauma or you're battling depression or, you know, you've lost a loved one, those are all boxes you can check that are important to you and uh, the expertise that a potential counselor will, uh, would have. So if you uh, want to check it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part uh, so they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. And you need to be over 18. And then finally, this is from the Psych Ward Experiences, um, filled out by, I got 99 problems and mental illness is all of them. <laughs> and uh, she was hospitalized for suicidal ideation, OCD, bulimia, major depressive disorder, skin picking, anxiety, and then in parentheses, shall I continue? Question mark. She writes, I was 15. It was my second time being hospitalized in a month because I was extremely suicidal. One night, a random nurse was checking in on me and asking me questions about my eating disorder. She asked me why I don't eat or why I sometimes binge and purge. The obvious, of course, was the weight control and the role it played as a coping mechanism. Then I told her that sometimes when I tried to eat, I physically could not force myself to swallow the food. It was like there was a blockage in my throat, and then parentheses, all in my mind, I know. 
And then I told her when I do eat slash binge, the feeling of letting it sit in my stomach was emotionally excruciating and I could not sit with that feeling. She said, wow, I wish I had that problem. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I'm here with Amy Morin, who is a psychotherapist. You're a licensed clinical social worker. You're an author. You're a podcaster. I was a guest on Amy's podcast, the Very Well Mind podcast, and I really enjoyed talking to you. And so, when we were wrapping it up, I was like, "If you ever find yourself out in Los Angeles, give me a give me a ring. I'd, I'd love to interview you." And so, here we are. Uh, a lot of stuff that I I want to talk about. I'm not really sure where to begin. So maybe let's start with what led you into wanting to become a therapist. So I was a pre-med major, which I think you were as well, I was. right? I was. I only lasted one day. And uh, <laughs> my first day of college, everybody was so excited. We were going to dissect cats on day two. I happened to love cats. And I thought, in that moment, I thought, you know, I actually don't really want to be a doctor. I don't think I want to dissect anything. I just like the idea of helping people or right. something to do with medicine. So I called my sister and I said, I need a new major and I need one now because we're dissecting cats tomorrow and I'm not doing that. And she said, she was a psychology major a few years ahead of me. And she said, well, don't major in psychology because you can't really do much with a bachelor's degree in psychology. Go for social work. And I said, okay, that sounds good. I didn't even know what a social worker did, to be honest. So I switched my major that day. Just as long as I got out of the pre-med field, I was fine. But I ended up falling in love with social work. And after I got my bachelor's, decided to go on and get my master's because I said, I really like working with people from the neck up after all. <laughs> right. Uh, and explain for our listeners the difference between a a therapist and a licensed clinical social worker. So if you get your master's in social work, you can then go on and get your clinical license in the state of Maine where I was licensed first. It takes an extra couple of years, but then you can work as a therapist. There's a lot of different initials like MFT and different states have different ones. LCSW is licensed clinical social worker in the state of Maine where I was first licensed. That let me open my own practice if I wanted and I could could be a therapist, charge insurance companies, the whole nine yards. I'm now licensed in the state of Florida and I can do the same thing. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, people with a master's degree uh, or above in psychology can all practice psychotherapy, but licensed clinical social workers um, aren't necessarily licensed to do talk therapy. Uh, is that is that correct? Uh, you know, I think that they are. Again, I can speak from my experiences in Maine and Florida. So as a clinical social worker, we can diagnose mental illnesses from depression to OCD. We can treat them. Uh, 
the difference would be like a psychologist can do testing. So they might be able to test somebody for a learning disability. I can't do that. And the psychiatrist is the one that prescribes medication. I can't do that either. Right. Uh, so, nor, nor can therapists. Right. A licensed uh, marriage and family therapist can't do that either. Right. right. And I think some states now are allowing psychologists to prescribe medication. But again, it varies from state to state. And there's not a lot of reciprocity. It's a strange system that yeah. definitely needs an overhaul. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you fell in love with it, or at least you found a passion for it. And then, uh, what was next? You got out of, you, you got your master's and you immediately started doing, um, counseling. I did. So I was, I was 21. I did this accelerated program where they let me get my master's degree. And I thought, Oh, I'm 21. I'm going to now sit in a therapist's office and impart all of my wisdom onto these people that walk 21? in the door. 21? Yeah. What the fuck? How do you... <laughs> Looking How do you back, get your master's by the time you're 21? What time did you enter college? How old were you? Uh, so, well, I graduated, you know, right on the verge of 17, 18. But they, if you have your undergrad in social work, they let you do grad school in a super accelerated form. Makes mm. you feel really good about seeing a clinical social worker for those of you that do. But um, I promise we're credentialed. But uh, they let me do an accelerated program. So I was able to get through grad school. I think it was within less than a year. Wow. And what surprised you the most when you started uh, seeing patients, even you know, licensed or not, uh, before you were licensed or not? I would say uh, how much people were kind of all suffering with a lot of the same things, and the exact diagnosis didn't matter as much, whether it was generalized anxiety or, at the time, major depression. A lot of the symptoms were the same. The suffering was very similar, and the things that I was seeing... Uh, again, it just resonated, whether it was teenagers, adults, people just feel alone. They feel like they're not good enough. It's very similar stories, and yet everybody felt like I'm the only one dealing with this, which, by the way, is why I love your podcast, because oh, it thanks. sheds so much light on the fact that so many of us deal with the exact same struggles, uh, no matter what walk of life we come from, and and you're talking about it. Thank you. Uh yeah, one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to start it was living here in Los Angeles, you see a lot of people who have the external life that you think is going to fix your insides, and you see enough of them uh, miserable that you begin to realize, wow, uh, I think there's something more needed, and I even experienced it myself. I had success in, in television, and I was at my most suicidal when I was at my most professionally successful. And that's one of the things that woke me up to the the fact that oh, there's some other component here that I am missing. Um, and, you know, it's nice to hear you reinforce that idea that our insides aren't really that different. What's triggering the feelings inside might be different externally, but... Um, so what were some other light bulbs that, that went off in your head as you began treating people? And was this in rural Maine? It was at the time. I was in rural Maine. And I guess the other light bulb is how many, how long people suffered before they would get help, how much courage it took to make that first phone call to see a therapist, and how in rural Maine it was an issue in terms of the stigma attached to it. Right. And there's a good chance you'll run into somebody in the waiting room that you know. I right. would see teachers who would run into their students, or right. uh, I would see uh, professionals in the community. You might be a lawyer, and yet it's, there's one of your clients or somebody that, that you work with, one of your colleagues in the waiting room. And 
people often sometimes are embarrassed about it or they would come in and that was their big fear. What if I see my cousin? What if somebody mm -hmm. knows? And then it was like, yeah, but if somebody sees you here, it means that they're getting help too. Right. And then, it, you know, then once people got to that point, it was like, then they could talk about it and they just felt so much better to know it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what kind of job title you have. We can all struggle with the same exact things. And, and, and that to me speaks to the corrosiveness and the, I don't know what the word would be, the, the the cruelness of mental illness is that it can give you such a blatant example of how you're not alone and you can turn it into shame. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, how many people I think have grown up in households where maybe seeing a therapist is means you're broken. There's something really wrong with you that you're crazy because normal people don't do that. And nobody says, like, if you go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned, that you have a weakness. Nobody accuses you of right. having a problem. Like, we just take that for granted. Like, yeah, of course you would. But for some reason, that stigma attached to therapy, mm -hmm. I think it's definitely getting better. But, boy, when I first started out, it was there in a rural area where people were really struggling. Some of them were just so ashamed to say, I'm having these problems. And what if somebody finds out? Yeah, it's funny. We have no shame icing down our knees, but finding something to ice down our brain. Uh, what's the matter with you? I don't want the neighbors to know. Right. Talk about the losses that you experienced in your 20s and kind of where that led you and what those experiences were like. Yeah. So about a year into my work as a therapist, my mom died. And she passed away suddenly. She had a brain aneurysm. She was healthy and fine. I talked to her on the phone at probably 9 o'clock that night. And uh, by 11 o'clock, she was gone. Wow. And, you know, I was an adult, obviously, but uh, so many things my mom wasn't there for. And I just thought, this isn't fair, you know? <laughs> like, Were you guys uh, close? We were very close. And it was like the first major loss. And I thought, ugh how do I go through this? How do I now be a therapist and help other people? And I had seen so many people in my therapy office go through grief and loss, and some of them were just really angry and bitter. And I thought, I don't want to be that person. Uh, and, you know, so shortly after my mom died, like, I don't even always tell the whole story because it sounds like you're like I'm making it up, like a bad country song. Like my dad's house caught on fire. It was like two. I took two weeks off from work. The day I went back to work, I get a call that's all, oh, by the way, your dad's house is burning down. And, uh, it didn't, didn't burn flat, but everything was water and smoke damage. So all of my mom's stuff that we just hadn't, you know, we hadn't gone through her stuff yet, but a lot of it got ruined and we couldn't like make the choices of, do you want to keep these clothing items or wow. not? Or it's wanna... like the universe just wanted to erase her. Right. That's what it, Is that what it felt that's like? That's exactly what it felt like. And then to think, well, now do I keep this sweater that smells like smoke and is forever going to smell like smoke or do you just get rid of it? And, um, I remember talking to my dad as he was driving home and he said, you know, I kind of hope the house just burns flat. And because, uh, you know, he knew if it was just damaged, then it was just more stuff to deal with. And uh, they were able to save it, but it was damaged. And uh, so that just felt like more salt in the wound. I think, OK, now here's stuff of my mother's and now the insurance company hired cleaners. So everybody came in and touched everything and everything was misplaced and moved. You know, I kind of wanted to know like what was the last book on her nightstand that right. she was reading or, but we never got a chance to, to do any of that. And, uh, I just remember thinking, Oh, 
this isn't fair. This isn't what I intended. And I just felt sick. My parents had been together since they were 18 and 19. My mom was 18 when they got married and my dad was 19. And so then to see my dad alone, so bizarre. And, uh, and I'd never seen my dad cry before. And, uh, yeah, it was awful. And I'm, and I just remember thinking like, gosh, I was a foster parent by that point. And, uh, I had kids that would come into my house and they were like four and they didn't have a mom. And I remember thinking like, okay, I'm 23. I'm a therapist and my mom passed away, but at least I had a mom I grew up with. But on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but I also wanted her here for a lot longer. And ah, going through that whole grieving process and then having to go to work as a therapist, it was tough to say the least. You'd think I'd have more intelligent words to say other than <laughs> tough. I'm an author and a therapist, but Ah, that's all I can really say. And it took a long time. How do you get through the day when you've got eight hours of sessions and you just want to stare at the wall with your mouth open? Yeah, that it was difficult to go back to work. Um, you know, they gave me whatever it was, two days of bereavement time or something. And I had a couple of weeks of vacation I was able to use. So I took a couple of weeks off, but it wasn't like I was better when I went back to work. In some ways, it was a distraction because I could really focus on somebody else right. for a few minutes. But on the other hand, there were days when somebody would complain about their mom and I would think, oh, I wish I could still complain about my mom or, you know, my human too. So there were plenty mm -hmm. of those moments as well. Did you resist calling him fuckface? I did. I did. Good for you. You are a <laughs> professional. I did. But there were moments too where I thought at least as a therapist, you know, I have the tools, I have the skills, I have the knowledge, I at least have the book knowledge. But of course, you still have to go through it. It's like not just because you know about grief doesn't make it any easier to go through. And what an interesting perspective you had is you intellectually knew what was going on. You could separate yourself from the mean voice in your head, the doomy, you know, voice that just wanted to say it's all shit. Yep. Um, yet you felt like it's all shit. What's the point? I mean, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I yeah, no, I think I had all of those same thoughts and feelings that other people do the whole why me or why couldn't this have been different? Or what if I would have done something different? You can't prevent a brain aneurysm, but I of course had those thoughts and all the and personally, I think you could have prevented it if you yeah. loved her more as her, <laughs> right. as her daughter. Right. That I don't know if there's any scientific basis. That's just what my gut tells me. Right. Exactly. And you have those moments. Oh gosh, that was the last thing I said. What should I? You know, again, if I would have been there, blah blah blah. Um. So yeah, I had all of those, and then I thought, all right, well. You know, my mother was a, a devoutly spiritual person and had raised me to she was a Sunday school teacher. I went to church and I was like, okay, you know, I just have to, to get through this and, and the spiritual component and that will help me. And even though this happened, like God still loves me. And then you know what happens next. So the three years to the day that my mom died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. It was three years to the day. And we, he and I had had this conversation, like, what are you going to do this weekend? Because it was always a tough weekend when you hit those anniversary dates. And uh, we were talking about what to do. And there was uh, the last night I had seen my mom alive was at an auditorium. We were watching a basketball game. 
And I hadn't gone back to that same auditorium for years, but we decided let's go to a basketball game sort no. of as a way, right? No. As a way to honor my mom. It was like, yeah, let's go to this game. We go to the same auditorium and I'm like, oh, this is the last place I saw my mom. We're having this conversation like, well, at least now, you know, we can, we can talk about her in a way that we smile and it doesn't hurt quite so much. Almost like a, like a sigh of relief. And. And it was, it was fun that night uh, to be able to talk about her in that way. And I felt like I'd conquered something because I went back to that right. auditorium and uh, we get home that night. And my husband says, oh, I don't really feel well. I didn't think anything of it. Uh, but a few couple hours later, he really didn't feel well. And we were getting ready to, to go to the hospital. I said, you need to go to the, to see the doctor. You need to go to the hospital. The ER was two tenths of a mile from my house. We were on our way to get into the car and uh, he collapsed. And I called 911 and uh, thinking, hopefully this is a seizure. Hopefully, I had no idea what it was. He really didn't have a huge history of health problems. And the paramedics got there and one of them said to me, this doesn't look good. And I'm thinking, what do you mean it doesn't look good? It just couldn't compute in my brain uh, that it was that bad. Because I kept thinking, hey, maybe he had an allergic reaction to something he ate. Right. And he was 26? <laughs> 26. Wow, I am so so sorry, you know, for both of those things. And it feels trite saying that because, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I've heard a lot of shit on this podcast that takes your breath away, but that one is wow. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck that auditorium. Yeah, no, thankfully that building has been taken down now. I never set foot back in it again, and it no longer exists, and I'm grateful to that. As you know, one of the ways our brain tries to make sense of things is to want to say, if I could only, or was there something I did, or is this bad luck, or whatever. How did that auditorium fuck with your head? After that, you know, the whole thing is I just kept thinking that it was three years to the day. Like, that's like, this isn't a coincidence. What are the chances, right? And what are the chances that two people in my life would die in such random, I mean, brain aneurysm and, and a heart attack just so suddenly when they were fine one minute and gone the next? And then, I've, yeah, I had those thoughts of, well, is it because I went to the auditorium? You know, we try to like make some sort of sense, a story behind it of like, and I think I needed some sort of sense of control. Like, gee, if you just don't go to the auditorium again, nobody else will die, right? right. And which, I, you know, again, as a therapist, I know we, that we all tend to do these things. But yet, in those moments, I'm like, well, yeah, but what if that's real? What if that really is the story? What if I'm like bad luck? What if people who talk right. to me end up, uh, you know, I had so many questions, so many thoughts like that. So much, again, guilt with my husband. Like, what if I would have taken him to the hospital the first time he didn't feel well? I said that. To which doctors said to me, no, you know, like if this had even happened in the hospital, he, he wouldn't have made it. Like, yeah, but you'd probably just tell me that anyway. Do right. I believe that? I had so many of those, you know, guilty thoughts and feelings and questions about um, what could I have done? What should I have done? Should I have seen this coming? At least, you know, what if he hadn't seen his primary care doctor? I don't know. It was, and then to think about work as a therapist too, like, can I really go back to the office now? Right. And uh, so... They gave me, I think I had, at a mental health agency, I think I had three days of bereavement. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the irony. That's right. So, great. Yeah, I'll be in on Thursday. So, uh, you know, I used all of the sick leave I had and then um, asked if I could use my short-term disability, to which they said, 
well, short-term disability doesn't cover grief. And this is when my older sister, who's a therapist, steps in and says, yeah, but you cover major depression. She like marches me into the doctor. You need to write down on this form. <laughs> she, she has Good depression and, and that she can't go to work for at least three months. And um, to which they did. And that granted me three months off. Not that three months was a magical cure either, but it at least gave me time to say, right. you know, I got to take the phone bill and put that in my name. Or what do I sell? <laughs> it's just the practical stuff that you have to deal with is overwhelming, to say the least. What, what, as you're describing and going back and revisiting that time, uh, what goes through your head and, you know, your soul? Oh, you know, it's almost surreal, even in looking back and thinking, did I really go through the whole, like, I guess my 20s after that just became a blur. I remember thinking, okay, I'm a widow. I don't have my mom. Like, who do I have and what do I do next? And in bringing that up now, there's still a part of me that's like, well, don't tell how bad it got because you're a therapist and you should <laughs> pretend like you at least pulled it together, you know, nice and neatly after the 365 days. Uh, but, you know, there's the rest and it says, no, like it was hard. There were days that were really, really hard and dark nights. And uh, what were if you're comfortable sharing any of the unhealthy coping mechanisms you reached for? Yeah, so I never was a smoker, but my husband, he smoked like sort of off and on his whole life. There were days I was I picked up, you know, his leftover cigarettes. I was like, mm, cigarettes, I knew they're bad for your health at the moment. I could have cared less. And I don't think it was necessarily a coping skill. It was more like he did this, so I'm going to do it too. Um, otherwise, you know, I just, I think I distracted myself a lot just because it was so painful that I just couldn't deal sometimes mm -hmm. so um where and where my mom's stuff had uh after the fire and her stuff you know all got moved and shuffled around i didn't want to do that so when my husband died i basically left the house like a museum like a shrine his jacket stayed where he last hung it his shoes were there and i can remember being mad if anybody touched any of his stuff like no because <laughs> i felt like like uh like i still wanted to somehow create memories with him. Mm -hmm. So if I found a piece of paper that he'd written a note on and I'd never read it before, like that would be something new. I could still learn about him. And so for a long, long time, uh, yeah, his toothbrush stayed right where it was. His, um, all of his stuff stayed there. And, uh, I think I just, you know, it's just too tough to even think about going through it or anything like that. And, at the same time, I had to make the decisions about what to do with his some of his stuff, like he had a boat. I don't drive at the time. I didn't know how to drive it or anything, and I had no desire to use his boat. So I did manage to sell that. But on the other hand, a lot of his stuff, I mean, even to this day, so he passed away in 2006. I mean, his clothes are still in boxes that I've never done anything with. Um, and I think a lot of that just stems from because we had to with my mom. I just made the decision not to do it with his stuff. But... Uh, I got a motorcycle and a pink leather jacket and <laughs> used to just, I got my motorcycle license and I drove it around and I think I was never like hoping I would die, but I think at the same time, you didn't care. I didn't really care that much. And, uh, on the, the one year anniversary of the day that he died, his, uh, well, I guess it was his birthday when we first decided his mom and I decided to, uh, jump out of an airplane and people are like, oh, you're so brave. And I'm like, well, you know, if the parachute opens, great. If not, it mm. <laughs> wouldn't be awful. Um, 
yeah, I guess I had a lot of those moments where I was just sort of like, oh, you know, I had my mom, I had my husband, life was good, but I didn't do all the other things I wanted to, and I had sort of lost hope. Like, I'm, we were foster parents, we we're going to adopt, and I'm like, well, that got taken away, so there's no sense in that anymore. And, and I just didn't really know what to look forward to, or even if I could look forward to anything for a really long time. What does intimacy feel like after you lose a spouse? Oh, how complicated is that? Incredibly. And it's so awkward. So when you're 26 and you're a widow, I mean, all my friends are just starting to get married and they're in relationships or whatever, but we'd go somewhere and maybe, uh, maybe men would be talking to us or something. And I had no desire to, to talk to anybody. I kept my wedding ring on for a long time, but you know, somebody would maybe make a comment like, Oh, are you single? Like, imagine looking somebody in the eye like, yeah, actually I'm widowed and I'm 26. <laughs> like, and like the look on their face of pure horror and um so to figure out for a long time i was like do i really want to date anybody no not really do i want to go on and ever get married again probably not mm -hmm. i remember people saying to me oh you're young you'll get remarried and i didn't want to hear that i had no desire to hear that from anyone and so then i had a phase where i just thought we'll just reach back into the old pool of people i've dated before because they're at least comfortable right mm -hmm. <laughs> they know so the thought of going on a first date with a complete stranger and then telling the story of oh by the way um to which my sister would be like she's a therapist as well so she'd be like it's gonna be tough to find a, a man who's interested in a widow someday and then when you tell them like well you really don't want biological children as well <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, and then, you know, you don't, you're not really into somebody maybe that already has several children or a, a lengthy past. So she's like, you might just have to stay single. And I was like, fine with that. I wasn't really looking right. for anyone. So I was going to be completely okay with that. And, um, is it, and was there any particular reason why you didn't want biological children? I just, you know, thankfully, I feel like, uh, when, when the desire to have biological children was handed out, I just got skipped over and I was a hundred percent fine with that. And I think growing up, I knew that there were foster kids who didn't have a home. And so as a, I don't know, teenager, I think I came to the conclusion of like, I don't need a kid that looks like me. I'll take another right. kid that doesn't have a place to go. So that was right. always what I planned. And so as soon as I turned, uh, like 21, 22, 23, they let you become a foster parent. I like signed up right away. And, um, they licensed my house and you did the whole thing. And I thought, oh, this is this is what I was meant to do is to have foster kids and adopt, I especially wanted to adopt the kids that like age out of the system. You turn 18 and then right. they kind of like kick you out right. of the foster care system if you don't get adopted. So I was like, oh, I'll adopt all of these kids who don't have a place to go so that they have a home to come home to. I'm thinking this is what was the plan in my life. So as that all comes to a conclusion of oh maybe that wasn't the plan. <laughs> i just thought that was the plan back in the day and it, that plan not being valid anymore because that was too much for you to do single it was because if i worked as a therapist i did it um for a while but working as a therapist um and having a foster kid is really tough because foster yeah. kids have so many appointments they have their own therapists they see visits with parents and doctor's appointments and dentists and it's really hard to have a regular full-time job as a single parent if you have foster kids. So what happened next? Uh, so it took years, I think, before I really started to come out of the uh, haze of grief, before I could really think straight. And again, really had no interest in, in the dating world, but I had an old friend who paid a visit 
And it was just, he, he knew what happened. He knew the story. And uh, we were just friends hanging out. And over time, that slowly evolved into a romantic relationship that felt comfortable. But it was one of those, I right off the bat, I said, you know, just so you know, like, my husband's family has basically adopted me. So I spend Christmas with them. So if you're going to hang out with me, you got to spend Christmas with them, too. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. <laughs> And we would go to their house for dinner and he was okay with that. And I thought, this is probably weird. I don't know. At this point, everything in my life feels weird. So right. it didn't even feel that weird to me. And he just accepted it. There's pictures of my first husband, Lincoln, and I on the walls in the house. And he would go over for dinner and um, that was okay. <laughs> right. Did, and did his family, when it turned serious, uh, did his family have any problem with it? And I imagine they were probably happy for you because they probably wanted to see you find love. They were. They were very happy for me. And I had made the decision to, when we decided to get to get married, to not have a big wedding. The thought, you know, I knew people would be happy for me, but at the same time, I knew that it would be tough for people to be like, well, and the reason you're getting remarried is because of what happened or people that knew my first husband. And and I thought, I don't, I don't want to, I want anybody to be sad. I don't want to look out and see people being kind of sad. And I, I, decided let's just elope so we went to las vegas and got married at a drive-thru and it was fun <laughs> and i thought you know i just want to have fun in life at this point <laughs> we don't need a big serious thing and i had come to the conclusion you don't need to get married in a in a church you don't need to uh, you know my friends and family all love me they supported me and they, but they didn't necessarily all have to be there physically either to make it real this is such a horrible question to ask but I have to ask it because I think everybody probably would experience this is what did you think when you were having sex with your new partner and his ghost was watching? <laughs> um, or maybe you didn't experience that. I guess I can remember. Or his spirit, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, I can remember feeling... And is that a, uh, a ridiculous question? It is not a ridiculous question because I can remember feeling guilty in the early days. Right. And, uh, I mean, I felt guilty about everything. I felt guilty the day I took my wedding ring off. I felt guilty about a lot of things. But, uh, fortunately, my first husband, Lincoln, and I had had a lot of conversations because when my mom passed away, my dad eventually went on to get, to get remarried. And uh, so we had had conversations like, if anything ever happens to me, like, you go ahead. You got the green light. I want you to find somebody. I want you to be happy. And I'm thankful that we had those conversations because yeah. at age 26, I think most people don't have those. But I felt like that gave me permission. And I thought, yeah, I have no doubt he would want me to be to be happy. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, I'm like, do you, you know, let's let's think about this. If he's in heaven, do you, do you get remarried in heaven? Would I really want him to be remarried to somebody else? Right. Yeah, as long as you still promise you still like me better. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, these are all the things that somebody who has never experienced that particular strain of grief or loss can't wrap their head around. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of support groups. When you are in a room with other people who know all the nitty-gritty of what's going on in your head and all the mean tricks that your brain plays on you. Yes. You know, be your own therapist for a minute and, and walk me through some of the things that you would tell yourself or your therapist would tell you. 
Yeah. So definitely back then, I would get so many people who would say things like, oh, I know just how you feel because I was widowed too. Somebody was 80 years old. I'm like, well, that's good. Or oh, again, the stuff people would say, somebody else like, I know exactly how you feel. I am divorced. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had to, yeah, I guess learn to, to be forgiving of other people to know that mm-hmm. as much as people wanted to relate to me that, uh, I didn't know that many people that were widowed that young or their stories were different. And I guess I knew a bit about PTSD and trauma and knowing that after I, I got remarried that when my current husband, Steve, does anything that could be considered mildly dangerous or if he says he doesn't feel well, my head goes to, oh, good, we're going to lose another one. Right. Um, Stay away from the auditorium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I knew that uh, I knew that a lot of that was happening. I knew that anxiety um, when we were apart would be uh, a lot of it just because of my trauma history and knowing um, and knowing that that helped a lot as a therapist being able to say, all right, this is what's going on. Uh, and I guess the fear of of being alone, but also the fear of being with somebody combined because we have the guilt of now, can you be together uh, with somebody else? And how does this work and figure out who am I in a different relationship versus the first one? And as a, as a spouse, um, what's this going to look like? Lincoln and Steve are two very vastly different people. So my life looks much different now than it did back then. Mm -hmm. And then thinking, well, what does that say about me? Like, did I change because of these people? And uh, like, who am I? Who was I when I was single? Um, how did I change during the course of my grief? Did I become this bitter, angry person that I didn't want to be? And there were days, uh, that, you know, I'd hear about other people my age getting married and, and having kids and, and thinking that's painful for me. It was hard. I remember the first wedding I went to after, after being widowed and thought, oh, you know, to now go see two people my age who were just starting out and having a, a wonderful life together. And it was somebody I went to high school with. So I knew lots of people from, from my high school would be there and wouldn't know. So they'd be like, oh, what have you been up to since high school? Oh, well, my God. Let me tell you. <laughs> Speaking of auditoriums. Right, right. So you know, a lot of that, and I did have a lot of conversations with myself to, to deal with the guilt and to know, all right, this is painful, um, but it won't last forever that someday, you know, in the people that say, oh, time heals. It doesn't. It's really what you do with your time that matters. Or when people would say, uh, you know, just just got to get through this. Or, you know, once, once a year passes, then things will be better. There, there's no magic timeline. And, and grief is weird. You have days where you laugh, and then you feel bad for laughing. And then the rest of the day is ruined. Or or you're fine, and you're in the, in the middle of the grocery store, and you see something, and you just start crying because you're like, oh, those are his favorite canned beans or something like that. And, uh, and not everybody gets it. And the, my friendships that changed too, like a lot of Lincoln's friends were really close to me afterward, but it was harder for them to be around me after a while. Yeah. I was the constant reminder that he wasn't there. And then uh, my f- uh, closest friends, they've been there for the good and the bad, and they've stuck with me and I'm so fortunate to have them. Uh, but they didn't know what to say. Again, there's nothing you can say. Sometimes I had people that Luckily, I have supportive people in my life who would just come over and like clean my house because <laughs> it's like not really nothing I can do for you. I had a friend that took me out for dinner and I went to pay and he said, for God's sakes, there's nothing I can do for you. Let me pay the damn bill. Right. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and so it was just a reminder to, that it was okay to lean on other people too, even though I'm like, oh, I'm a therapist and I'm not supposed to do that. That, that was okay. 
And you're, as you know, as a therapist, when we allow someone to help us, we're actually helping them because we give them a sense of meaning and purpose and connection. And allowing somebody to express love is a loving act. Yes. And it's funny that we're, me included, that I, you know, it's hard for me to sometimes to say, yeah, you can do that for me. But then I think about when somebody else is struggling with something and you really want to help them and they're like, no, I don't need anything. But you know that they do, but they won't accept your help. How frustrating that is because I would feel better if you just let me do something. <laughs> right. If you could get all of the people that have supported you since then in a room, what, what would you say to them? Oh, gosh, I would just, just tell them I know how hard that had to have been in those early days when there was nothing to say, nothing to do. But they just stayed with me anyway, and not knowing what I was going to look like on the other side of this, but they stuck with me. So my three best friends have been with me since we were kids. One was when we were four, the other one was when we were 12, and the other one was when I was 13. The four of us have been together since we were kids, and they've been there for the good and the bad, and I just appreciate that so much. So, you know, I, as you were talking about putting yourself back out there and, you know, risking loving again, it, it, the, the word that popped into my head is feeling exposed. Yeah. I think that's a good word to think, how do I open up my heart to anybody else? How do I... Again, like, okay, yeah, you can, we can go on a date, but on the other hand, you know, here are the rules or here's, right. <laughs> or, you know, for somebody else too, like I give kudos to anybody who can date somebody who's been widowed because you don't know. Like, so when you suggest let's watch this movie, well, this person may have watched the movie with their first spouse right. and it's either a great memory or it's a sad one. Or they're like, right. oh, we went to the movies and saw this together or a song on the radio. You don't know the story behind it, what their story is. And they may start crying randomly or they may laugh or they may want to tell you a story that you don't even want to hear because you're like, oh, that's great that you guys had this special memory of right. that movie that I wanted to watch with you. But so I think anybody who can stick with somebody who's been widowed is probably kind of amazing. <laughs> so let's talk then about um, what inspired you from from this and the book that is it fair to say the book that came out of this. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, so. I sort of thought, all right, at, maybe at some point life will look better. Maybe it could. And uh, after the, uh, after I got remarried, I got a different job, different house, kind of decided, okay, it's time for a different start in this house that has served as a shrine for so many years. It's time to move and let's do it. It was just tough, but we decided to. And uh, I think it was about a couple weeks after moving, my father-in-law gets diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. I, I, you know that... That was just laughing at the. Uh huh. Just like I say, really, often, you know, and again, the the weirdness. Like, so when my mom died two weeks later, my my dad's house had caught on fire. So my husband died two weeks later. My grandparents' house. I got a call that was like, "Your grandparents' house is burning down." I mean, it was just like strange stuff that you just think, "Oh, right." So anyway, my father-in-law gets diagnosed with cancer, but it's prostate cancer. So they're like, "Well, you know, we got this. It's treatable." Within a couple of weeks, though, they say, actually, it's not. And uh, it's spreading. And uh, I just remember thinking, okay, I lost a parent. I don't want to see my husband lose a parent. But my father-in-law had stepped in and sort of become this very real surrogate parent to me. And I had started writing as a side hustle because I needed money when I was mm -hmm. widowed. And you could only be a therapist so long. 
I didn't want to lose my house. I didn't want to lose. I wanted it to be a choice when I sold the house. So I had started writing as a side hustle for like $15 an article, but I could mm-hmm. churn them out. So if I wrote four articles one night, I'm like, there's 60 bucks. This is great. And uh, when I got remarried, I still was doing that. And my father-in-law was cheering me on. I would write horrible articles about random stuff like shipping containers in a city or something like that. And he would always be like, what are you writing about today? So the thought of him getting sick and I thought, you know, how, how can this be that I would lose another person close to me? And, but it wasn't like I had this choice, but it was different this time when I lost my mother and my husband, it was so sudden and, and happened so fast. And this time I knew it was coming, not that there's a better way, right. but I thought, ah, my heart's broken still. It's shattered. I feel like there's nothing left. And, um, at that point, my husband had become his his dad's primary caregiver, and doctors basically said, you're looking at weeks. And I remember just sitting at the kitchen table thinking, you know, I curse somebody else. Like, how can I, how can this possibly be happening? Thinking about other people in my life, like so-and-so hasn't lost anybody in the last few years, and so-and-so over here. Like, mm-hmm. I know somebody else is way more deserving of an illness than my father-in-law. And... By then, I had learned a lot as a therapist over the years about how to not become a bitter and angry person. And so I sat down and I write myself a letter about mental strength. And it was like, what mentally strong people don't do? And it was like, okay, Amy, just knock it off. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't give away your power. And I just went through this list and I thought, all right, if I do nothing else today, just don't do these things and maybe you'll be okay. And I would read over the list and it was helpful. So I thought, well, maybe it'll help somebody else. So I published it on, on a website thinking six people would read it, hoping it might resonate with one. But 50 million people read that article. And before I knew it, Fox News is calling and Forbes magazine had reprinted it. And a literary agent called and said, you, you have to write a book about this. And the article gave no context. It was basically, here's 13 things that you shouldn't do. and didn't say anything about me being a therapist, what my backstory was, nothing. And I didn't know what a literary agent was, so I thought, yeah, whatever. But by then, my phone was ringing off the hook with all of these people who were like, she's mastered this list of things. This is great. And uh, nobody knew it was a letter to myself, even. And so luckily, this literary agent called back and said, no, you should really write a book. And I said, well, I have a story, but I'm a therapist. I don't tell my story. I listen to other people's stories. So I, I would never want to share the story behind it. Well, of course, then her ears really perked up. And she said, tell me the story. And so I said, hey, here's why I wrote it, and uh, which what uh, nobody knew. So I was on Fox News talking about this article four days after my father-in-law passed away. And I didn't even then on TV, I was like, yeah, I just know these things. I'm going to open the floodgates on TV and explain mm-hmm. why I had written it. Um, but after talking to the literary agent, I talked to some friends about it too. And they're like, absolutely, you tell that story. And within a month, we had a publishing deal with HarperCollins, and my book came out a year later. But yeah, it was really all from the stuff, hey, I learned this stuff because I've struggled with it. And even though it's now been all these years later, I still work on it. And I still think that uh, I'm a work in progress because of my struggles. I've certainly learned a lot, but I'm not perfect. <laughs> and it's 13 things mentally strong people don't do? That's right. Yeah. Give me, give me one. Uh, so number one was that they don't feel sorry, waste time feeling sorry for themselves, because that was where I was in that moment of thinking, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to deal with this. This is awful. And I knew, like, there's a difference between being sad and, and pitying yourself. Being sad is about saying, you know, this is hard. Uh, this is painful. I got dealt a shitty. 
hand. Exactly. But when I'm feeling sorry for myself, it's like, I can't stand this. Nobody's going to help me. I, it's a really helpless, hopeless, digging in my heels as if that were somehow going to make life better or I could stop the bad things. Like crawling into a hole by yourself and saying, nobody stick your hand in here because this is the worst hole that's ever been created. Exactly. Right. Like my problems are so much worse than the rest of the world. And they were bad, but again, I had plenty of things that I also had going for me. I don't know. I wasn't homeless. I had friends. I had other family. I had resources. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us as humans to do is to hold two contrasting ideas at the same time, that somebody can be both good and bad and that our situation can be blessed and horrible. Absolutely. And again, as a therapist, I knew these things, but at here I am thinking like, I'm either happy or I'm sad. You can't be both. Well, yeah, you can. And you can feel a lot of conflicting emotions and you can think a lot of conflicting things. And your experience might seem like uh, we have that all or nothing kind of thinking that we go to, but it's probably the gray area in between. And so, so again, that article, 600 words, but it changed my life. And here I am and that I still get to speak about mental strength but sometimes people don't know the backstory still they think yeah. oh you wrote this because you're a therapist like yep that's part of the story but that's not the <laughs> whole story i wouldn't have ever written that book uh otherwise i have a list of 13 things and these are things that i took a guess were going to be on your list and i don't <laughs> know uh the first one uh from the 13 things that mentally strong people don't do is Get on public transportation and not get off until you find someone to marry. <laughs> that did not make the list. It did However, <laughs> could be an interesting social experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then what is one that's on there? Uh, so another one is, I guess, the one that people talk about the most is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. So we tend to blame other people and we're like, oh, my, my mother makes me feel bad about myself or my. So my, she's at fault if I'm for my emotions. Right. My brother makes me mad. Yeah. We blame other people for how we feel about ourselves, for our emotions, or we blame other people for stealing our time. Like, oh, I can never get anything done because the coworker always has to talk to me. Well, it's up to you to say, no, I, mean, I need to get back to work or to set boundaries. But when we don't have boundaries in our life, we just blame everybody else for taking things from us. And it's really kind of in that same neighborhood as self-pity. Yes. Is self-pity is often a way of shirking responsibility for self-care. Right. Or asking for help, you know, a, a, almost like that, you know, that injured animal that crawls into the corner to protect itself and it won't let anybody get close. And it's understandable that somebody has that survival mechanism in there, but um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do us any good. Right. It certainly doesn't, but it's so tempting. And then once you're in that place, it's hard to get out of it because you think everybody's out to get you. You start to think hey, nobody understands me and why are right. they doing this to me? And when people have suggestions or ideas, you think that they, they just think I'm better. They're better than I am or nobody, nobody gets it. Or it's not going to work. What do they know? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Here's another one I have. Uh, when you're tired, sleep between the layers of a cake until you're refreshed or the cake is gone. It sounds comfortable to be in the layers. It's of so cake. comfortable. <laughs> have you ever had a buttercream pillow? I have not. Oh, it fucks your hair up, but it is delicious. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah. 
That did not make the list. It did not. Then give me one that did. Uh, so that they don't dwell on the past. Which again, is another one that... That I, has to be a hard one. Yes, because the past was where Lincoln lived. And it's where I wanted to live sometimes to say, let's just sit here and rehash every moment or go down memory lane all the time. Uh, so that I don't have to live in the present. And I don't have to think about the future. But ultimately, I knew that dwelling on the past wasn't going to do me or anybody else any good. And it was about thinking, okay, I can, I'm not being uh, disloyal to him if I say, how am I going to still enjoy this moment, even though he's not here? Or how am I going to make plans for what life could be like, even if he's not in him? I would imagine if you ask yourself, what would he want? It would be, he would want me to be happy. Yeah, absolutely. And so that helped me sometimes to just remember like gee are you honoring him if you sit in, in your bedroom mm -hmm. and stay in the dark room for the next 30 years like is he really going to want to and you know there was that pressure too of being like well if you loved your husband you'll be sad for six months if you really loved him you'll be sad for a year if you really really loved him you'll be sad for the rest of your life almost like it was a badge of right. being able to prove to other people how much love you had by how sad you were or how long your grief lasted so i had to work through that for sure so, I, my brain just went to screensaver. Sorry about that. That's one of the things my dad used to say. Um, how? What, then what is the difference between not getting stuck in the past, but healthily reminiscing? Yeah, I think... I guess it depends on a few things. So, how you feel when you're when you're doing it and why you're doing it. So, if you're just rehashing things because uh, you want to beat yourself up or there's blame involved or negative feelings right so often we try to go back and heal some unhealed wounds by replaying things in our head as if there's going to be a different outcome or we think if we stay stuck back there that again that might somehow make our future better or like we can learn from it by rehashing everything and reliving it and i so i know for me it was about just thinking, well, what did I learn? What, what are my good memories? I'm sure I made some mistakes. I wasn't a perfect wife at the age of 26. Uh, what, but what can I take forward from it? And even though I couldn't take uh, Lincoln with me for the rest of my life, like, what did I learn from it? And, you know, what part of his spirit do I want to, do I want to carry on? And I, he was this loud, boisterous, like funny guy. I'm the shy, quiet person in the back of the room. And uh, there's so many lessons I learned from him. And I think, yeah, he uh, he used to wear, uh, you know, like loud, kind of loud clothes. And one day this person walked by wearing these bright red pants. And he's like, I really like those. And I said, do you think you could pull them off, though? And he said, I'd sure as hell try. And so that sort of became my mantra in life because I was a shy, quiet person who never tried because I thought, what if I fail? What if I don't? But yeah, sure. Well, I'm sure as hell try. It's like he missed the embarrassment gene. So if right. he fell in front of people. I'm like, so jealous of people that don't have an embarrassment gene. <laughs> it was like that became his story that he couldn't wait to tell people when something, you know, like right. split his pants or whatever. He just couldn't wait to tell people. I'd be the person that's like, I must never repeat this story. So I learned so much. And so just figuring out how do I take those stories and learn from them and then move forward in a way that would honor him rather than feeling like I had to just stay stuck there. All right. I'm going to read another one from my list. I'm really disappointed that none of these are on your <laughs> list yet. Uh, carry a comb in your back pocket. So if you're at a loss for words, you can stall and your hair will look great. That's an interesting idea. Will you consider it if you add your list and make it a little longer? 
I could. I could do that because I think a stall tactic is important sometimes. And nice hair, nice feathered hair. Right? And just to buy yourself an extra minute. Yes. Especially if you're somebody. So I guess another thing on the list is that mentally strong people don't try to please everyone. People pleasers (laughs) need a pause because their go-to response is yes. Yes. So when somebody calls up and says, hey, can you do this favor? Absolutely. Or when somebody says, uh, you know, can you you do this thing? Yes. Because we don't want to let anybody down. We don't want to say, no, I can't. Because what if they get mad? What if they get angry? Nobody nobody can ignore the pit of their stomach like a people pleaser. Right. And then uh, for for those of us that overcommit, then you have that moment of, oh, why did I just do that? And then as the Thursday or whatever day you agreed to something comes closer, then you're thinking, how do I back out of this? (laughs) Can I fake sick or do I still have to do this? And then what if they're mad? So I do encourage people, and I use this myself, to have that pause. So you might say, thank you for asking me. I'll get back to you on that. Yes. before you make a decision, Such before a you commit to tool. anything. Such so a powerful tool. If you had the comb in your back pocket so that you could comb your hair, that could be the pause. <laughs> so I'm I'm getting warmer is what I hear. Uh, whenever your dentist tells you to floss more, challenge them to a fist fight. Oh. So I do like sometimes behaving like the opposite, doing the unexpected. Well, uh, stand, this is to me is about standing your ground and getting mm-hmm. exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I thought these were going to play a lot better <laughs> than, than they are. So I got to tell you, I am uh, really reconsidering my potential as a therapist. Well, that could play into the one about um, not giving up after your first failure. So if you didn't floss uh, for a while and you see the dentist and the dentist recognizes that you haven't flossed, that's okay. You don't have to punch the dentist. Instead, you might just work on your fear of failure. Talk more about not giving up after your first failure because that is one that resonates so deeply with me and a lot of people, I think. Right? It's embarrassing. It like, changes who we, well, how we think about ourselves. If it doesn't happen the first time, we think, oh, it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. And so as a therapist, I was seeing people's all the time, I would say, well, I tried that, but it didn't work out. Well, you failed one college class, but that doesn't mean you're an idiot and you can't succeed. But we all do this sometimes when we fail at something we think it wasn't meant to be and we give up on ourselves or we become so afraid of embarrassing ourselves again, mm-hmm. quote unquote, embarrassing ourselves that we don't try. Yeah. And uh, I had worked with this guy who was working on weight loss and he'd lost a lot of weight at one point in his life, gained it all back. And by the time he ended up back in my office, it was because a doctor recommended he come in, not because he wanted to be there, but she said, I don't know if he doesn't get it when it comes to weight loss, but he's like laughing. He makes jokes about it. And like defensively. Right. And it was clear that he said to me, no, he said, I could lose weight again if I wanted to. I did it before. But when you fail at weight loss, the whole world sees. He said, you know, normally if you fail like in business or your, your bank account, maybe or something like that. A lot of people aren't going to know, but he said, when you fail at weight loss, people see you lose all that weight. They're cheering you on, saying great things to you. And then when you gain it back, they see that too. He said, I don't want to ever go through that again. And it was this fear of failure that was making him then make these defensive jokes. And so were you able to work with him and get him to see things differently? It was. So a lot of it had to do with not seeing himself as either a total success or a total failure, that black and white thinking again and knowing that weight loss is a process. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. But also, even if he did gain the weight back, that there was a chance, 
most people who lose weight do gain it back statistically, right. that it didn't make him less of a person. Or right. even if other people maybe even had harsh comments for him, like he was going to have to learn to tolerate that if he was going to take that risk right. to try to lose weight. And you still had that moment when your body was healthier. Right. You're st still adding some longevity to your to your life. Right. Uh I don't know why I keep going to this list and you're shooting them all down. But uh, if, oh, how does this say? Use your spare time in elevators to learn the flute. That's a good one. And it does kind of go along with uh, one of the things on the list, which is that mentally strong people don't fear alone time. Really? So if you were trapped in an elevator with a flute, yeah, seems like a good idea. They don't care about people pleasing. Right. Right. They, they're in, into hobbies. Right. This could go, this could match up with a lot of them. I think there is a book in this one. <laughs> uh, give me another one from the list. Uh, so uh, let's see. Another one would be, oh, not resenting other people's success. That one's off the table. <laughs> I wrote the book before Instagram was invented. Right. So <laughs> it was easier back then. Yeah. Um, another one would be not expecting immediate results. You know, yeah. And it, the world was different when I started working as a therapist back in like 2001. Mm -hmm. it, we didn't have this like Amazon Prime wasn't invented. I feel like it's gotten so much worse over the years because we're so used to if you have a question, you Google it and you have the answer right. within four seconds. And if you want to order something and you don't order from the catalog anymore, you get it delivered. and It lands right. on your doorstep right away. Mm -hmm. And so people come into therapy after two weeks and they're like, well, this didn't work. What's next? And because they expect it to happen so fast or they like, what else do you have up your sleeve that will make me feel better? And it's about knowing when you change your life, it doesn't happen like an Amazon Prime package. It's going to take a long time. That is one of the hardest things, and I think especially for people in recovery from addictions, because the whole reason that that bad coping mechanism, quote unquote, worked for us was it was immediate. Right. Right. All right. I got one last one. Tape pictures on your bathroom mirror of everyone you hate. <laughs> yes. Interesting. That might go wrong with giving away your power because <laughs> you're going to give these people that you don't like a lot more time and attention in your life, uh, which would give them more mental and, I guess, in this case, more physical real estate That's... in your life. Have you ever um, done the morning affirmations? Are you a believer in those? Do you think there is something to be said for that? Talking to yourself in the mirror is cheesy as it? It sounds. I've done it before, and I, and sometimes I've I've felt something from doing it, but it's always combined with a kind of an inner eye roll of really we're doing this. Right. Yeah. I think it's tough to look yourself in the eye in the mirror as you're like you you're good enough. You can do this, but. I think that changing the way we think is so powerful. It's why sometimes just a quote can put you, can shift your mindset. Mm -hmm. If you have a few sayings, a few mantras, something that you say to yourself over and over, because it drowns out the negative thoughts that we have right. and gives us just a different perspective. And I think I've had a lot of people too who will have a sticky note on the bathroom mirror. So if it feels too cheesy to look yourself in the eye and, and give yourself that motivational speech, just having a sticky note that you can look at while you're looking at yourself can go a long way toward right. just motivating you as well. So often we get the, you know, it's a friend who says, no, you've got this, you're okay. 
But I think that needs to come from within, too. And mm -hmm. when we can remind ourselves, whether it's you look yourself in the mirror or you have that note or you, you know, some people get a tattoo on their arm of a saying that they really like. But when you can remind yourself of how you want to think or what's important in life, that goes a long way towards shifting your perspective. Yeah. And, and I'm, not, I'm not being facetious when I say start out low with like, you are not a piece of shit. Yep. You are yep. not a failure. You're doing okay. Right. You know? Because I think sometimes people go to the extreme where they're like, right. you're the most awesome human being in the whole world. Yes. You don't believe it. You're a golden egg <laughs> that the universe laid to become the world's chick. Right. And when you're, look, when you're saying this stuff, it's just like, oh, this doesn't work because you don't believe any of right. it. So just start really small with, okay, I'm not as bad as I think I am. Might be the first thing you say right. before you get to, okay, I'm okay. One of the things that I've found to be really powerful, especially for people who've experienced childhood trauma is to talk to a picture of yourself from the age that it was really tough. And I had my inner eye roll already, and I started talking to that little kid, and the tears just came pouring out. Yes. I called him Buddy, and by the time I hit the second word, the tears were in my throat, and I was able to get in touch with that compassion. You right. Because when you're looking at that picture... And you see the innocence of that kid that just wanted to be loved, that just was trying, trying so hard and didn't know what they were up against. Right. Yeah, I think that's so powerful sometimes to just say, what, would, what advice would you give to yourself back then? And what, what would you want that person to hear? What did they need? That's the, the I would say the, the question that most often elicits a really emotional response from people that I talk to on the podcast. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, so I just wrote a, my first kid's book. When people would ask me, why'd you write a kid's book? I wish I would have had this book when I was a kid. You know, I was the chubby shy kid that never talked. And if somebody would have told me, Hey, just because you feel anxious or just because you think these things doesn't make it true. That could have changed my childhood. What, if you could go back to when you were a kid, what, what age would it be and what would you say to yourself or how would you interact yeah. with yourself? So I guess, so, yeah, when I was like 12-ish, we'd say I was the, the chubby shy kid that never talked in class and uh, to the point that, I mean, my face turned beet red. I was one of those kids and I had a seventh grade teacher. I had this pink notebook and the seventh grade teacher would say, hold it up by your face, Amy, and then the whole class is going to turn around and look at you. Now move the pink notebook in front of your face and we'll try to figure out where the notebook ends and your face starts because it would match wow. that, you know, bright pink. And obviously when somebody does that, it doesn't help and make <sighs> it easier to talk in class. And so... It just got worse after that and to the point that I didn't read my papers, even if the teacher said, can you read this? My answer was no. So if I could go back and tell my 12-year-old self, hey, by the way, someday you're going to give a TED Talk that 16 million people are going to watch because what you have to say is actually valuable. I wouldn't have believed it then, but would have changed my whole world to know you can be anxious and still speak up or just because you're shy doesn't mean you don't have anything interesting for people to hear. That is so awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that is. Wow. Wow. And little you probably would have gone, what the fuck is a TED Talk? And you'd yeah. say, just wait. <laughs> just bear just with wait. Me. <laughs> bear, just trust me. It's a good thing. Right, right. It's a good thing. Uh, and if you could go back to yourself when you, when you had that horrible stretch of loss, 
What would you say? Uh, I would tell myself, even though it doesn't feel like like you'll come out of this or that you'll be able to help people with your story someday, you will. And but you don't need to rush trying to get better. It's okay to let yourself be heartbroken for as long as you need to. Have you had moments where you feel like your relationship with the universe or a God, if there's a God out there, uh, has changed? Definitely. You know, because I have times where people will say things to me like, this is really good that something good came out of this, right? I'm like, well, it wasn't like I chose this, right. you know, I and writing a book or four books doesn't make up for my loss. If I could take my people back, I'd take my people and, and not have those books. Right. Uh, so I have had those moments of like, well, maybe there was meaning in all of this. And this was your purpose in the end to write this book and, and that that was going to help people. But I don't like is that really it? Like, <laughs> did I really have to go through it? And, you know, did other people have to suffer because of it? And then the questions of, you know, does, how would, how would my loved ones feel? I now tell their story and I profit off of it. Like, is that okay? Right. So uh, it definitely has. So, you know, I still, I believe, I believe in God. Uh, I don't necessarily believe God is up there punishing me or, um, making horrible things happen to me. Um, and I guess I always felt like, you know, God doesn't doesn't give you more than you uh, aren't supposed to be able to handle. But there were days that I doubted. I thought, I think yeah. he overestimated me. I'm not sure I can get through this one. I think sometimes about, you know, what if there is an omnipotent entity out there, whether it's a, you know, a universal law like gravity or something else, um, what what is at work there and the the best that i can kind of agree is that it can provide a sanctuary in mm -hmm. the pain that the, the the pain is gonna be there that's just it seems like you look anywhere in nature there's pain there's loss there's change so to think that that should be different is a little bit of a waste of time so accepting the reality that there's going to be pain and cruelty and all that other stuff. The best that we can hope for is that there is definitely a source of comfort and it can come, you know, from that being through people or reading a quote or finding a meaning and purpose in your life. And I think, and tell me if you've experienced this, you feel it in your body mm -hmm. and it changes Right. You. Yes. Yes. And when you were on my show, you were talking about how you said, I don't necessarily believe in God, but I believe in prayer. Prayer's a great coping skill. When you think I have nothing left, there's nothing I can do right now to, to pray. For me, it definitely gives me comfort to say, all right, there are a lot of things in the universe I can't control. Um, but if there's a chance prayer helps, that's yeah. the one thing I'll do. Yeah, it's it's kind of a way of taking your hands off the steering wheel of the car that's sliding towards the cliff. Yep. Yep. Anything else you do? What What is the name of the newest book? Uh, so the newest one is 13 Things Strong Kids Do, because kids already have right. are told not to do since too much stuff. So my niece, right. my 10-year-old niece said, you can't write a book about what not to do for kids, Amy. You better make this right. one a positive one. I took her advice. So so it's called 13 Things Strong Kids Do. It's for like the 8 to 12-year-old range. I like that. I, I see a lot of times in the history of guests that come on this podcast is they were raised in a home where 
their parents were trying to not necessarily mold them into something, but to mold them into the opposite of something, which is, as you know, often brings in a lot of conditional love. It does. It definitely does. I see that all the time as a therapist. The dad that didn't make the football team wants to raise the football star or the parent that felt like they weren't good enough or smart enough. They really want to make sure their kid doesn't experience the same pain they had. But ultimately, it's ends up being a really painful experience right. for everybody. Right. Anything else you'd like to uh, share? Your your podcast is the Very Well Mind podcast. Also, uh, really popular website, verywellmind.com. Uh, all your books. Uh, what is the name of your personal website? Uh, so Amy Morin, LCSW, is in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And uh, any public, uh, any social media handles? Yeah, so the... Instagram's the big one where I'm Amy Morin, author. And Morin is spelled M-O-R-I-N. Anything else you want to share? Ah, gosh, that was fun. Thank you for letting me. I mean, I say it's fun, like talking about grief is a good time. (laughs) But but I often still don't, you know, I talk about the books, that sort of thing, without really going into my story. So thank you for that opportunity. My pleasure, Amy. Thanks for for being on. Many, many thanks to, to Amy. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Before we dive into some surveys, uh, there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. We are always in need of one-time donations or recurring monthly donors, and you can do it one of two ways. You can do it via PayPal, or I think the better way is to do it via um, Patreon, because occasionally uh, I will offer stuff up to be raffled off, like a cutting board or, you know, stuff like that. So all the links uh, to that stuff is on our website, metalpod.com. Let's see. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Dragonfly. (laughs) And about her depression, she writes, I want a crane to lift me out of bed. Holy shit. Yes. Yes. A specific crane. A gentle crane with a built-in pillow. And maybe snacks. Uh, Jordan gives us a snapshot from her life. Uh, She writes, going to a NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, going to a NAMI support group, knowing I should be there, but getting dread that I won't make a connection with anyone at the meeting and want to leave every second. Jordan, I wanted to read that because that, I think, is a really common thing. Uh, for those of us that that go to support groups. And I will occasionally even experience that, not necessarily the not making connection part, but wanting to leave, feeling like there's something better, you know, that I should be doing. And almost every time I sit through a meeting, I hear something I need to hear, or I make a connection that improves the quality of my life, or I offer help to somebody that gives me a feeling of meaning and purpose and helps me find peace. And I think we will always be up against that voice in our brain that is like, you know, this is going to suck. Don't do it. I should leave. That is uh, a common struggle. So I get you. This is an awful some moment filled out by that's a big 1033. I don't know what a 1033 is, but uh, he writes, spending my Saturday night listening to local police calls while Google Google mapping places I used to fuck my old girlfriend. She liked Frank Zappa. 
That should have been a red flag. <laughs> you cannot make that shit up. Boy, it's a lot of his... I, I liked his uh, music when I was uh, growing up, and I still like some of it, but boy, a lot of it did not age well. Uh, a lot of it is really uh, hostile towards uh, towards women. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by Kaylee and about her ADD, ADHD. Uh, she writes, telling a story and then hearing yourself talking and then getting too bored to finish the rest of the story. Road rage starting two minutes into my 10-minute car drive because I'm too bored to just drive a car. Snapshot from her life. I tell everyone everything to an unhealthy extent. I'm not sure what it is, but I carry little shame when it comes to mental health and trauma, but that means I'm willing to say anything and everything about what I'm going through to someone that's not always fair to the people that may be involved in this story. I can't lie either because it's just an extra step my brain can't do. I'm not sure how to start fixing this besides writing in journals and learning what's appropriate to share, but the ADHD makes writing in a journal very hard. I often write the wrong words when I'm going quickly because my brain is jumping three words in the future. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I think it would be cool to hear my people talk about their ADHD on the more emotional side of things. I recently got put on a medication called Guansifine because with ADHD, I also suffer from RSD, which is Rejection Sensitive Disorder. It's only associated with ADHD, but essentially I have issues feeling too many feelings physically in my body. When I get angry about things, I feel like I'm boiling and it's very difficult for me to drop it because it's physical. The meds I'm on now stop some adrenaline from processing or something like that, and it really works. I can feel myself getting angry in my head, but there's a calmness in my body that's great, and it's extremely refreshing. I'm no longer getting riled up, just ruminating in my head all day, and I've never heard anyone but my psychiatrist talk about it. Thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> I, I had not heard of that... Uh, that med and I'm so glad it's it's helping you and it's interesting too how uh, different uh, issues or uh, personality disorders uh, can share qualities uh, with with other issues and personality disorders you know some of the stuff you shared um, people who have PTSD experience it or people with borderline personality disorder and I imagine navigating that not only yourself but but your psychiatrist or therapist as well has to be really really fucking complicated but i'm glad that you're you're finding relief um from a, from a diagnosis and meds that work for you this is an email that i got from the website i am naughty and the subject line says someone eager has written to you and uh the email reads, you have a new private message from Rachel 5. And it took me a while to recover from the fact that I was ignored by the first four Rachels. I eventually pulled myself together and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give Rachel 5 a chance because as the subject line says, she's eager. And she took the time to write to me. And so I clicked on her private message 
and mud shot out of my USB port. I don't think that's a good thing. And my refrigerator also caught on fire. So, maybe I'll hold out for Rachel Six. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by uh, Psych Ward Addict. And she writes, I was hospitalized four times due to suicide attempts and an eating disorder that almost took my life. My stay at psychiatric hospitals saved my life for 5 to 21 days at a time, but the lasting impact was minimal or severe, depending on how you look at it. I learned things here that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. I learned more creative, less obvious ways to self-harm and get high, picked up a vicious smoking habit, and some, some of the most horrific things I have seen to this day. After I'd been hospitalized the first few times, I had this weird, strong desire to be admitted again. I never felt normal in the real world, but being surrounded by so many people who were also labeled, quote, crazy, made me feel safer than I ever had. I guess I have mixed feelings on this. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, it's amazing. In the wealthiest country in the world, in the history of civilization, that our mental health care system is so barbaric and backwards. And that we would rather, I'm I'm going to try not to get off on a, a, a political rant, but that we would rather spend money starting wars than we would helping our neighbor deal with something that is so complicated and difficult and overwhelming. This is from a Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Light Bright and in the parentheses, the childhood game. I remember that game. I love that game. Snapshot from her life. Overhead, overhead bathroom lights burned out one by one for weeks as I sunk into sexual assault triggered depression. Didn't want to see myself or my body anyway, let alone drag myself to the hardware store. After the last one burned out, dragged myself out of the house for an overdue haircut and picked up a six-pack of bulbs. Plugged them all in to take the obligatory post-haircut shower. And not only everything lighter and brighter, but I'm cute. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, I, I have experienced that depression where one by one the... The bulbs in the bathroom are burning out, and it's just a reminder of, oh, you are you are stuck in the sludge. You can't even you can't even take the time to fix this, and you're just looking at yourself in this sad half half light. This is an awful moment filled out by Dragonfly, and uh, she writes. I'd been caring too much for a physically unwell friend in hospital, and then in parentheses, codependency, eek. I got jealous slash distressed and took an overdose, putting me in the emergency department of the same local hospital. As I sat ashamed and distressed on a bed, I saw another friend be pushed past in a wheelchair. I was horrified and terrified she would see me, and I hid under the blankets for hours. I did laugh, though. I was in the same hospital at the same time as two friends. 
but I was the only one who knew. All in the same place for different reasons, but without being together. I couldn't tell them because that would reveal what I'd done. I hope that you can get to a place where you can open up without shame about your experience. And, you know, so many of us see things like that as weakness when what they really are is just somebody crying out in pain. And there's nothing to be ashamed about being in pain. But thank you for sharing that. This is also from Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by Looney Tune. And uh, she was hospitalized for suicide attempts. And she writes, Just being in concrete slabs, echo chambers, constant doors slamming, echoing into the eeriness, having to wear those clothes that remind you that you've lost your mind, the horrible food, constant supervision, being around people who smell, talk to themselves, and remind myself things weren't that bad. They're way worse now that I was there. And being stuck in claustrophobic and tight spaces, bored to death watching movies. The beds are jail mats, so uncomfortable and so fearful of bed bugs. The AC vent would blow what looked like little strands of paper around. And as I was coming out of my psychosis or whatever, I would make words out of the papers flapping. All I know was that it was dark. The whole experience, very dark and eerie. Would not recommend LOL. Thank you for sharing that, man. That sounds fucking awful. As hard as it is to read these, I feel like it's really important to share what people go through because I don't think a lot of people are aware of just how broken our system is and how uncompassionate so many of the facilities are. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Chrissy about her depression. She writes, bipolar depression. I didn't brush my teeth yesterday. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. About her love addiction. I met this veteran on Tinder. He told me he killed a kid on the first date. We fucked that night. About being a sex crime victim. But he loved me. Wow. That is heavy. That's one of the things that's so fucked up about sexual assault is it is so common for it to be done by someone we trust or someone that we feel loves us. And sometimes that's a part of their grooming process. And boy, does that make it hard to trust Pinky Swear shares about her anxiety, like fireworks going off in my body, yet I can't see them, nor are they enjoyable. About chronic pain, the rage I feel towards people, friends and ex-friends, judging me and my declining health from degenerative disc disease is only harming myself, but I can't stand being accused of lying, and it makes me question myself. Fuck you. I'd like to see how happy you would be after 33 plus years in pain. How did you find us? How do you find a support group? Uh, 
she asks, uh, there are a, a couple of different ways, and there's no one best way, but helpguide.org is a good uh, resource for links to a ton of different uh, support resources. And also the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org. Um, you can also Google uh, support group and then a keyword, you know, support group, chronic pain. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Gingerbread and a mother ADD. She writes, doing all the things except for the thing I need to do. Oh, fucked it. Oh, man. I get that. I get that. This is struggle in a sentence filled out by CJ. And uh, this is a really complicated uh, issue. Uh, she's been the sex a sex crime victim many times and a snapshot from her life. I haven't had sex or been in a relationship for four years, so I have no current context to anchor my questions about my sexuality. I've always identified as queer, in the parentheses, bisexual. But I fear that since queer space is the only space in which I feel completely comfortable as a woman, I mistook my sexuality as bi to be open-minded and fit in, when in reality, I'm just a boring straight person. I truly don't know who I am or what my sexuality is, and it makes me feel lost and confused. First of all, I, I, I want to say I'm sorry that you are struggling with this, and fuck labels if they're making it difficult for you. And the first thing that popped into my head is to ask yourself, what is it that you want? Do you, do you want a relationship? Because for some people, um, not being in a relationship is, is the best choice for them. And if you do want to be in a relationship, um, you know, I, I think I think we need to ask ourselves what we want because oftentimes our choice is made by trying to avoid stigma of being oh the person that doesn't date or you know the the person that can't nail down the label for their sexuality. Um, I think either way, a really important thing for you to investigate is healing. You know, being a sex crime victim once is life alteringly difficult to be one many times it is totally understandable that you would only feel safe in a queer space with women you know if if you gave it a chance to heal to process what you'd been through things might change you might find out that you're still in the same place or you might find out that what you want is different or that you still want the same thing, but it's easier to go about it. But either way, you deserve to be the most authentic version of yourself and to heal. So you're not living with that pain that clouds clouds our brains and keeps us in a place where, where we just feel confused. I don't know if that makes sense, but sending you some love. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Laura about her depression. She writes, it feels like I'm running away from my life, feeling deep shame and regret about it, but also 
conflicting comfort in hiding away from every type of responsibility. Oh my God, that is, that is Hall of Fame dead on. About her anorexia, every time I manage to take a bite, it feels like I'm faking it. I have no experience with anorexia, but you made it really easy to, to picture what it feels like to be someone struggling with it. About dissociation, whenever it happens, it feels like I'm underwater, unable to come up, and everyone else is floating on the surface talking to me. I can hear their muffled voices and kind of understand them, but I'm utterly unable to communicate anything back to them. That is, until I come up again. Wow, those are so descriptive. So descriptive. Thank you for that uh, snapshot from her life. I'm sitting across from my therapist after just having had a weigh-in to see how I'm doing. I'm too scared to look at her and hear her talking to me, but I'm so paralyzed with fear and sheer panic that I am unable to communicate to her what is happening. After a few minutes in silence, my body calms down and I feel ashamed for panicking so badly over standing on a scale. What the hell is wrong with me? I would say what the hell is right with you, which is that you are in fucking therapy. You took that leap of faith, that you are facing your demons, and that you're a badass fucking warrior. So let's let's think about that. And I hope that comes across as deeply shaming. Uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by not nearly okay. And about her depression, she writes, bipolar. Oh, wow. I feel really good today. Oh, no. I feel really good today. <laughs> that might be my favorite bipolar one. Oh. Whew. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is uh, a psych ward experience survey filled out by uh, Odes. And she writes, uh, I was hospitalized because I was feeling suicidal and my meds were a mess. I was in the hospital for 13 days. I am and have bipolar 1 disorder. I met and made friends with two men named Bob. One Bob was a young, big, and tall guy, and the other Bob was in his 60s. We hung out together during the duration of my stay. And one particular day, we were all manic and decided to have a party in the extra day room that sat empty most of the time. I had privileges to leave the hospital on foot, so I went down to a corner store and bought shitloads of candy and a case of Coke, in parentheses, the soda. Old Bob had his wife bring in his ABBA DVDs, and we set ourselves up in the extra day room with our candy and soda and ABBA DVDs, and we sang and danced to ABBA for a few hours. I remember one of the nurses coming to check on us. She looked through the window of the door and laughed. Pretty soon, other nurses showed up, peering through the door as well, and smiled and laughed. We must have looked and sounded hilarious in there, gorging on our candy and soda and blaring the ABBA DVDs and dancing our, and singing our hearts out. I'll never forget my two bobs. Wow. I live for reading surveys like that. I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but it... It's not. I 
just d- dancing in the middle of the hurricane, man, that to me is more important than professional success and just finding a way to do that. Finding a way to dance in a minor key is so difficult, but those moments just feel so amazing, so amazing. And that's when I get in support groups. I get those moments where I cry one minute and I laugh the next minute and I feel a part of by the end of the, by the, end of the meeting. Well, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I hope this episode has helped you feel less alone. And if you're somebody who has never asked for help or is afraid to ask for help or had a bad experience and you know are resistant to going and asking for help again, I, I really hope you can find the courage uh, to open up to somebody, whether it's a friend or a support group member or a therapist, because you, you, you deserve to feel seen and heard and and loved and uh, just remember you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird